We are in this series that we're going to continue today called About Us, just basically looking at some of the basic tenets of who we are. There have been so many new faces that have joined us in this last year. We thought that this might be a good time to pause and simply look at who are we as a covenant church. Why do we do what we do as a church? And so for this week and next week, we are looking at a subject that's divided the church in real ways for most of the church's history. The issue of baptism when and how and who should be baptized. And I think, honestly, that we bring a whole lot of our own story to that discussion. I think sometimes even too much of our own story to that discussion and, and how that decision is made. Many of you know that I came, my last church, where I was at for like 20 years, was a Baptist church. But I didn't actually grow up in the Baptist church. I grew up in a church, a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. I think we have a couple of other people that are represented. There we go, right over here. All right. And one of the things that was very unique about the Christian Missionary Alliance, at least one that I grew up in, is that unlike almost any other church, it didn't actually require baptism for membership, at least in the church where I was at. And that's very unique. It's very unusual. I mean, we practiced baptism. I remember seeing a few of them as a kid, but we really didn't make much of a big deal about it at all. But I remember even at a young age, knowing that if you were going to do it, you had better do it the right way, right? And the right way was very narrowly defined as believer baptism by immersion. That was the only right way. So no infant baptism, no sprinkling. Baptizees had to be old enough to know what they were doing, and then they needed to be fully and completely immersed all the way below the water and brought back up out of the water. That was the definition of what baptism was and is. And what's funny to me, what's funny about that is that while baptism itself really wasn't that big of a deal within the CMA, how you did it and when you did it really, really was. It was one of the things that distinguished us. It was one of the things that divided us from most of the other Christian churches in our community. In fact, baptism has been for most of the church's history, something that has divided the church in scripture, we have these first century accounts of baptism. They were all first generation Christians. And then we have 2000 years of the church wrestling and trying to figure out how do you do that for every subsequent generation after that first generation. And sometimes it's gotten ugly. Sometimes it has gotten violent. Christians have literally killed each other over this issue of what is the right way to do baptism. During the Protestant Reformation, for instance, in Europe, there was one group of reformers who believed that baptism by immersion was the only right way. And in fact, they believed that infants who had baptized, been baptized were not in fact baptized because infants weren't old enough to proclaim their faith and they weren't being immersed. And so those baptisms didn't count and they rebaptized people when they got older and did it the right way. Now to you and I listening to that, that may not seem like that big of a deal, but in this time in history, it was a huge deal. And literally thousands of these people, these rebaptizers, these Anabaptists, as they were called, thousands of these Anabaptists were executed, tortured, persecuted, and executed during the, the years between 1525 and 1660, the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Among the first of these early martyrs was an Anabaptist reformer from Switzerland named Felix Manns, who was killed in 1527. This is a picture of one artist's depiction of what he looked like. Manns led a small group of Christians in Zurich, Switzerland, who questioned the mass, who questioned the state church, and who questioned infant 
baptism. And as a result, the town council there in Zurich declared that the practice of rebaptism was illegal. And because man's refused to stop baptizing adults, the city officials, the police, and a minister of the local church bound him, put him in a boat, bound his hands and his legs behind him, and then used a stick to hold him underwater until he drowned. This, is, this practice, which became common, was known as the third baptism. Like, if you want to rebaptize people, we'll baptize you. King Ferdinand of Austria declared that drowning is the best antidote to anabaptism. John Horsch, in his book, Mennonites in Europe, kind of detailing the history of how the Mennonites ended up actually emigrating out of Europe into the United States, tells this story. He says, anabaptism was made a capital crime. Prices were set on the heads of Anabaptists. To give them food or shelter was a crime, was made a crime. The Duke of Bavaria in 1527, which he remembers the same year that Mans was killed, gave orders that the imprisoned Anabaptists should be burned at the stake unless they recanted, in which case they should be beheaded. In Catholic countries, the Anabaptists, as a rule, were executed by burning at the stake. In Lutheran and Zwinglian states, and Lutheran and Zwingli were the two main reform leaders, Anabaptists were generally executed by beheading or drowning. It sounds more ISIS than Jesus, right? Not the church's greatest moment in history. But I think it's important to know that. It's important to look back on that. And it's important to acknowledge that that history still shapes our theology around these issues today, still shapes some of our fights around those issues today. I was talking with my very Swedish and very Baptist father, and he shared this, this news article with me that was written back in 1923 that tells the story of my own great-great-grandfather. I'd never seen this before, and how this very issue of baptism led his family, my family, to emigrate from Sweden to this little Swedish enclave called Door County, Wisconsin, right on, on Lake Michigan. I'd never read this before, but he shared this with me. And I think we got a picture of it that can be up on the screens, right? I'm dropping stuff up here. How does Chris manage so many papers? All right. This article was printed in the standard Svenska Standardet, March 1923 issue. I promise not to affect the Swedish accent the whole time. But that's what it would sound like when my grandfather told it. <laughs> in the middle of the last century, so that would be the 1800s, a mighty revival broke out in the eastern part of the province of Norlake, Sweden. Among others, there were around 20 souls, one for the Lord in Boo County. One man, who like Saul in his time, was taller than all the people, and to whom everyone looked up, was to become the leader of those who turned from the world. He was Baron Hamilton of Boo Castle. This just sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? I love it. Righteous, God-fearing, and outspoken, Johann Andersen, which is my great-great-grandfather, was born in 1824, and the incident we are now going to relate took place around 1860. Andersen was married and had several children. They were all, according to the custom of the time, baptized by the pastor of the nearby Lutheran church, a co-minister, Almstead. But over the number of years, a conviction had grown in Anderson's mind to have one of his like-minded friends baptize his son, who was born in 1860, or even go so far as to wait until the boy was old enough to decide for himself whether or not he wanted to be baptized. But one who thought differently was co-minister Olmsted. One day, during the eight winter of 1861, 
Anderson had gone to a f farmer in Skalterstad, a neighboring county, to make a couple of chests of drawers for his daughter. Besides being a fisherman, he also knew something about carpentry. While his wife was alone at home, busy with her chores, she happened to glance through the window, and to her surprise, she saw a sled stop in front of her humble house. As she looked, out of the sled stepped the sheriff, co-minister Olmstead, and the midwife. The very surprised Mrs. Anderson asked herself what was going to happen next, but she not, was not left long in ignorance. She was informed that the authorities could not tolerate that a child several months old had not yet been given the holy sacrament of baptism. And now on the strength of some ancient law, they were going to perform this act. The will of the parents had not been taken into consideration. The pastor, added by, aided by the midwife, performed the baptism according to the ritual used in the Lutheran church. The child was named Axel, according to one of his brothers, which told the story of the undersign. The mother could not do anything but view the procedure through her tears. Had her husband been home, it would have been a different story, which the pastor well knew, and he had planned his visit accordingly. And this next, this next part is icing on the cake. A few days later, Anderson was presented with a bill and was expected to pay for the services of the pastor, the sheriff, and the midwife. Right? I mean, it sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like ancient history. And yet this is just a few generations removed. This is my family's heritage from just a couple of generations ago. And I think you can hear the hurt even in the way that story is written. That hurt, right or wrong, has shaped their theology. Their very held, strongly held theology around this issue of baptism all the way to today. Well, around the same time that Johann Andersen, my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, decided to move to America, there was another group of Swedes who moved to that same area right around Lake Michigan. And they started a brand new church that they called the Covenant Church, our denomination. And they decided that on this issue of baptism that had so long divided the church and who had caused Christians to kill other Christians, on this issue they would not divide they said on an issue like this where scripture and church history seems to allow for both sides, they would not choose a side. They would not choose to be divided. Instead, they would lean into the tension. And they would ask two questions. Where is it written? And how goes your walk? Those are the founding tenets of the covenant church. Is it biblical? And where scripture isn't totally clear, how do we prayerfully and carefully discern how to live this out together, how to walk this out together in a way that's faithful to God, to one another, and to scripture? And on this issue of baptism today, we come, and, and for this week and for next week, we're going to be asking the question, what's really, really clear in scripture? But also, what's not? Where are areas that perhaps we've thought that things were really, really crystal clear? And perhaps they aren't as clear as we had thought. And there's a lot that is actually really, really clear. It's really clear, for instance, that Jesus was baptized. All four of the gospel accounts make it clear that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. What's unclear is why. I mean, if baptism, according to the way that I was taught, represents the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus had not died, had not been resurrected, and had never sinned, then why was he being baptized? In fact, why was John the Baptist performing baptisms at all? 
Well, I think to understand that we have to look back at the fact that, that Jesus was Jewish and that baptism was and still is Jewish. Jesus was baptized because he was Jew. In fact, the account of Jesus being baptized in each of these gospels probably wasn't the first time that he was baptized. He had probably been baptized many times and, and done this many times throughout his whole life. We think that this is the first time and the only time because that's how our minds as 21st century Christians kind of take our theology around baptism and we overlay that onto the history that we see. That's how we read into Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But if you go back and you look at the traditions that led up to this, you see that Jesus probably had done this his whole life as a Jew. Christians didn't invent baptism. Baptism wasn't new to Christianity. Baptism, and this is one of your fill-ins, baptism is fundamentally Jewish. They wouldn't have used that word, but the roots of baptism could be translate or could be traced all the way back through the history of Jewish ritual that was practiced all through Jewish history and is practiced still today called mikvah or tevliva. Mikvah is this, this idea of rooted in Jewish tradition of, of ceremonial washing that dates all the way back to Exodus. It involved all kinds of different ceremonial washings. Some were religious rituals where people had to be immersed completely and fully in water so that they could go then into the temple, that they could bring an offering before God. The priests had to be fully immersed in running living water so that they could go in and offer sacrifices on the behalf of the people. But then some of these, these washings, these ceremonial washings, were actually more of a community purity issue. For instance, a Jewish person had to be submerged in water before they got married to wash themselves fully. Uh, women had to do that after they'd given birth to a baby or after menstruation or after intercourse. Uh, if someone touched someone that was dead or they'd been around someone that was sick, they had to be completely immersed in this living water so that they could be cleansed, both ceremonially and literally, for the betterment and for the sake of the community. In a lot of ways, these ceremonies were both religious and relational. It was established by God through Moses all the way back in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You see it carried out throughout all of the Old Testament. King Solomon, you might remember in 1 Kings, when he built the temple, he included a huge pool out front. A big circular pool called the Sea of Solomon. It was a pool of water to be used for these purposes of ritual cleansing. And so every Jew, even in Jesus' time, would have been engaging throughout their whole life and been familiar with this idea of mikvah, of ceremonial baptism, so that they could approach God and worship, but also for the benefit of the community, to maintain purity in the community, and to maintain their identity as Jewish people, as Israel. And that brings us to the second reason that they did these baptisms. There was a second main reason why a Jewish person would be baptized. It was part of the conversion process. So if a Gentile decided that they wanted to convert to Judaism, one of the things that they had to do was to be baptized by immersion. It was actually believed that when a, when a pagan person, a non-Jew, a Gentile, came to God and chose Judaism, that they would be submerged under the water, and that represented death to their old pagan life. As they were raised up out of the water, that raising up out of the water represented new life, as if they had been born a second time. Does that sound familiar? Let's read this. The baptismal waters, mikvah, in rabbinic literature is referred to as the womb of the world. As a convert came out of the water, it was considered new birth, separating him from the pagan world. As the convert came out of these waters, his status was changed. And he was referred to as a little child just born or a child of one day. 
It makes so much more sense then of the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. than unless a man be born again. So Jewish baptism was very present in the time of Jesus. In fact, uh, you may know that Solomon's temple was destroyed and a second temple was built in Jerusalem. And when they built the second temple, all around it, they built these elaborate pools of water. And these pools were actually believed to have special healing powers. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament where there's an invalid? I mean, in the New Testament, there's an invalid who's laying by the pool. And when the waters would bubble, he would try to get to the water so that he could be healed. But he could never make it. And then Jesus comes and and he heals this man. Well, that pool, the pool of Bethesda, was one of these mikvahs. The the pool of Siloam on the south end of the Temple Mount was also one of these mikvah pools, a baptismal font, if you will. They wouldn't have called it that, but that's essentially how it functioned. And so it's interesting that when we're introduced to John the Baptist in all of the Gospels, he's performing this mikvah, he's performing baptism, but he's not doing it in one of these elaborate pools. He's not doing it at the temple. He's not doing it through the established systems. He's out in the wilderness. He's out in the Jordan River. and He's performing these kind of outside of the sanctioned system. And Jesus comes to him, and when he sees Jesus, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is coming to perform this Jewish ritual of ceremonial cleansing, this mikvah, this baptism. And he's doing it for, I think, two reasons. He's doing it, one, to demonstrate solidarity. He's doing it to demonstrate that he can connect and relate and and identify with these, these people who are penitent sinners. But I think on a second level, he's saying, this is my initiation. This is my proclamation of a new way that, that you will experience, that all of the world will experience restoration and cleansing and sin removal and purification, not through the waters of mikvah, but through me. So it's really clear in scripture that Jesus was baptized. It's also really clear that Jesus and his disciples baptized other people during their time of doing ministry together on earth. Throughout all of the Gospels, you see this, but the book of John is just absolutely chock full of these stories of Jesus and his disciples performing baptisms. And each time that word baptism is used, it's actually a translation of, of the Greek word baptizo, which is a translation of the Hebrew word tavliva, which means immersed. That's not in my notes. I'm not sure why I'm saying that. Okay. Let's read John three twenty two. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and the people kept coming for him for baptism. This is because this is before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciple and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So a couple of things to point out there. That's the ceremonial cleansing. That's the mikvah that we've talked about. Another thing to point out, they're already fighting over this, right? So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one that you identified as the Messiah is also baptizing people. And everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. They're already fighting over who and when and why and how. This is already dividing this early church. But it's really clear that Jesus and his disciples are doing this. They are performing these baptisms. What's unclear, again, is why. Jesus has not yet died. Jesus has not been buried. He has not been resurrected. There is no forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ yet. All of that we know, but they don't know it yet. 
So the only context that makes sense of why they're doing this is they're doing this as a continuation of the Jewish ritual of mikvah, which was done over and over and over. It's also really clear that, and this is your next villain, Jesus commanded his followers to continue to baptize others. I think oftentimes when we, when we hear this verse from Matthew 28, we think that like this is the initiation of, of baptisms, like Christians invented this. But if you look back at the history, it's really clear that Jesus is simply telling them to continue doing that which they had experienced their whole life, that which they had been doing together with him. And he's saying, continue to do that. Let's read Matthew 28. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus commissioned his disciples to make new disciples and to baptize them. That is super crystal clear. But for the third and last time, I'll say what's, what's way less clear is why. I mean, if we superimpose our 21st century understanding and theology of what baptism is and why we would do it, and based on our history and based on our beliefs and based on the things that happened in the 1500s, then perhaps we wanted to read this verse to read something more like this. Baptize them in the manner that is right, as your nutrition has defined right, and with all the cultural and historical baggage in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But what if rather than trying to fit our theology back onto this command of Christ, what if instead we chose to look at what were the, what were the cultural movements, what were the, the, the practices within Judaism that led to this command? Well, I think if we do that, we're left with some questions. And maybe these are some of the same questions that Jesus' disciples might have had as he gave them this command. For instance, is this baptism that he's commanding them to continue to do? Is that a continuation of the Jewish custom of the baptism for converts? Is it a continuation uh, of the baptism that's the, the mikvah, the, the, the ceremonial cleansing that they did over and over and over again? Or is this Jesus commanding them to continue to do what they've been doing all along through this process? But now he's saying, instead of doing it in the name of Jesus, in the name of John, in the name of, of another prophet, or in the name of religion, do it instead in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is this Jesus introducing us to the Trinity? This is a verse that's often pointed to as proof, biblical proof for a Trinity. Was that his point? Was it somehow all of those? Well, the truth is a lot of debate has happened over the years. turns out this divides us too. What exactly was it that he was sending his disciples out to do and why? I think it would have been so much easier if Jesus had been just a little bit more specific, right? Something like this. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'm leaving you this 140-page user manual that explains exactly why and when and at what age. But he didn't. And so I think we have to ask, what would that command to baptize new converts, what would that have meant? How would they have heard that as first century, first century Jews? Well, I think it would have sounded a lot like mikvah. As a side note, while it's really, really clear in scripture that, that Jesus and his disciples performed many baptisms, did you know that there's actually nowhere in any of the scriptures where it talks about Jesus' disciples themselves ever being baptized? Nowhere in the text is there any account of Jesus or anyone else baptizing Peter, James, John, any of them. Now, I mean, I think it's safe to assume that they were because Jesus had them doing it. And if he had them doing it, they probably were. But I don't want us to miss the point 
that none of the authors of any of the Gospels, nor any of the later epistles or letters, none of the biblical authors thought that information was important enough to include in the story. We make a tremendous amount of, of, of fuss over the details of who and when and why, and they didn't even include it for Jesus' disciples. I think that's worth noting. So some of that isn't clear, but what really is clear is that Jesus told them to go out and make disciples, to preach the good news. And when they did, when they went out and preached the good news, people came to faith. And when people came to faith, they were baptized immediately. There was no baptism class. There was no waiting period. They just found some water and they did it right then and right there. In the second chapter of Acts, Peter's preaching to a crowd, a mixed crowd of Jews and other people. And it says that, Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord, our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. Those who have believed what Jesus said were baptized. I'm sorry, what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. It says that those who believed were then baptized immediately in that order, believed and then baptized. And that is the, that is the argument I've most often heard people use uh, for believers baptism by immersion. It says in the Bible that they believed and then were baptized. And that's absolutely true. That is how they tell the story. It's chronological. That's the order in which the story happened. And it wouldn't make sense to tell the story in any other way. But what's way less clear is, is the author including that as a description of how the story went. Is it descriptive or is it meant to be prescriptive? That that order is how it should always be done for the rest of the church's history. I, I think we tend to make a whole lot of this passage that simply isn't there. But let's just say for a minute that order does really matter. Like let's say that the order they did in scripture is exactly the order that we should do it. Let's take a look a couple of chapters later then just for curiosity to see how Peter does it a few chapters later. Verse 44 of chapter 10. Even as Peter was saying these things. Oh, he's, I'm sorry. He's talking to Cornelius who's a, a Gentile, who's not yet a Christian. And he's speaking to the whole household of Cornelius. So it's a room full of people that are Gentiles, not yet Christians. And he's brought some Jewish believers with him. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So a couple of things there. It says, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. They could have written it all who believed the message, but they, they don't. Apparently the only prerequisite for receiving the Holy Spirit that day was that you were there and you heard it. That you were listening. It says they were speaking in tongues. Even though it never says they believed, Peter then orders them to be baptized. So if order matters, and we said that it may have mattered in Acts 2, and that that order is really important. Well, if it matters in Acts chapter 2, then it has to matter here as well. So according to Acts chapter 10, the order that's proper should go something like this. 
They had questions. They listened to a message. They received the Holy Spirit, whole crowd. Then they all spoke in tongues and all of them got baptized and it never mentions belief. But I've never heard a church that, that would advocate for that order of things. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that we should either. What I'm suggesting is Chris suggested a while back is that it's very easy to take out a highlighter on scripture and to highlight the passages that we find support our theology. And it's dangerous to do that because there are other passages that aren't nearly as clear and we need to wrestle through all of it together and be very careful where we draw some of these lines. So it isn't clear necessarily the order in which it has to happen, but it's very clear that entire families got saved and then entire households were baptized in Acts chapter 16. Just a few chapters later, Paul and Silas are with a jailer and they're miraculously freed from jail and this jailer's going to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, don't do it. And he tells them about the gospel and the jailer says, tell me, what should I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. They brought them into his house and set a meal before him. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. It says the whole family was immediately baptized and that they all believed. That's super clear. The whole family believed. The whole family got baptized. What's unclear is what the second generation of Christians did. I mean, all of the accounts that we have in the New Testament are of these first generation Christians, these people who, who had come to faith, who knew Christ or who knew the apostles that, that had known Christ and, and they're baptized. And it's 3000 people at a time. It's jail cells miraculously opening and the, everybody gets baptized and everybody gets saved. And it's sensational and big. What's not clear is what happened like a month later when three people came to faith. What's unclear is what happened five years later or 10 Years later, when these new Christians, this first generation of Christians, started having kids. And they weren't sure how they were going to initiate these children into this faith, into this community that was so important to them. And again, it would have been so much easier if the New Testament got updated every 20 years, like most handbooks. Like the New Testament, 2017, new and abridged. But it didn't. We are given the words and the history and the context that we have. And with that, we have to wrestle through the questions. Where is it written? And then how do we prayerfully and carefully in community figure out how to live that out, walk that out together in community? And so to this question of how does the next generation get initiated into the faith? How do Christian parents bring their infants to God and to his community to be understood and to eventually understand themselves as being part of this Christian community. Well, church history gives us two primary examples, infant dedication, which we'll talk about briefly today, and then infant baptism, which Chris will be talking about in a lot more detail next week. And, and like so much of what we looked at today, I would argue that neither of those two traditions are nearly as crystal clear in scripture as they are in our traditions, as they are in our doctrines. And we need to hold to them loosely for that reason. 
This is one of those how goes your walk things that we have to figure out prayerfully and carefully together. But to that, I want to share with you just a couple, uh, in closing, a couple of my experiences with this issue as we have tried to figure this out as a family, as a couple. How will we do this with our families and with our kids? I want to show you a couple of pictures of some of the happiest, best days of my life. Here's the first. Okay, that's actually just my wedding picture and has nothing to do with this story. I just thought it was a great picture. My wife, who's sitting in the front row, actually still looks just like this. And I mostly do. No? No? Okay. All right. No. I, uh, this, is, this is just one of the best days of my life, so I want to show that picture. And because I wanted to show you a picture of when I was 27 years old, and I got baptized just a couple years after this for the first time in my life. After years of waffling on this issue of faith, after years of kind of dilly-dallying and not committing, after years of walking away from God and his church and living a long time for myself, At 27 years old, I got up in front of my congregation at my church and I said, from here on out, wow, from here on out, I want everybody in this room to know that I'm going to live for Jesus, that Jesus is the center of my life. He is who I live for and I want everyone to know it. And I invited a bunch of friends and a bunch of family in front of the entire church. I made that proclamation. And then we were supposed to have a small family gathering back at our house and I invited like 80 people. And I overwhelmed the house and we did fish and loaves and we made it all work. But it was a day that I will never remember. And in some ways it was a lot like my wedding day. It was a day that I got up and publicly made a covenant with a community to say, this is the man I'm going to follow for the rest of my life. Now, while I'm not arguing that's the only way or the right way to experience baptism, I am so glad that I got to experience it that way. And I'll never forget that day. But there are other good days as well. This is the day that we came before that same congregation with our oldest son. I'm not sure what that shirt I'm wearing is about, but at any rate, this is the day we came before that same congregation with our oldest son, Ian, who's here in the front row. We had prayed for years that God would give us a child. And after years of infertility and lost pregnancies, God gave us this amazing boy. And so we brought this child before the congregation, before the people of God and before God and said, God, this child is yours. We dedicate him to you. We pledge as parents and you as community pledge with us to raise this child, to know God and love God the same way that we have come to know and love God. And we as a community made a pledge to raise Ian that way. That was a good day, but an even better day came 10 years later where I got to the remarkable privilege of once again holding that child before God and before our community of believers. And based on his desire, I got to baptize my son on his confession of faith. Let me tell you what, that was like top 10 day of my life. It was an amazing experience. And while I'm not arguing that that's the only right way to experience baptism, I'm so glad I got to experience it that way. I'm so glad my son got to experience it that way. It's a day that neither of us is ever, ever going to forget. Here's what, here's what it comes down to. And again, this is a conversation that we're starting today that Chris will continue next week, but here's what I think it comes down to. Well, perhaps some of the specifics of how and when and who aren't as clear as some, we sometimes think in scripture. There is a clear connection that runs through all of scripture between being a follower of God and being baptized between being a Christian and being baptized 
There is no example in scripture going all the way back to Moses, all the way back to the giving of the law, where a faithful follower of God didn't engage in this act in some way, whether it was through mikvah or baptism. And while we don't have total clarity in all of it, that is crystal clear. When someone became a follower of Christ or a follower of God, they were baptized. How about you? Where are you at with this? Maybe like me, when I was 27, you've come to a point where you've been on the fence for so long and and it's time to just stand up and say, yeah, I want to be counted. I want to follow Jesus. I want to live my entire life committed and dedicated for the rest of my life to living for this person. I want to be obedient to scripture. I want to follow Christ and I want everybody to know it. To that, I would say, let's do it. Let's find some water. Maybe you said yes to Jesus years ago and you've been a believer and you've been saying these little yeses all along the way, but you've never taken that final step, this, this, this step for whatever reason of being baptized. And maybe at this point it feels moot. Like it's been 25 years now. What's, what's the point now? It just feels silly now. I would encourage you to lean into that and ask the question, like, what's that about? Why not say another yes to Jesus? And maybe the fact that it feels silly or it feels foolish, maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's part of what it means to surrender, to demonstrate to a community that I'm willing to look like an idiot and get dunked in a tank of water in my clothes. Maybe that's part of the humility that's represented in submitting to Christ. To that, I'd say, let's do it. And maybe there's a third group, and this is the one that's, this is the, one that's the most tricky, I think. You know, there's a group of people here that uh, at some point in your life, you were probably baptized, whether it was as a teenager or as an infant. And, and, and as we are looking at this, perhaps, you know, it it was reflective of your parents' faith or or a a camp commitment that you made or whatever. and, And you said yes. And yet that yes was not really your own. And I think oftentimes we, we, we've been taught, we've understood. And, and as we take our 21st century understanding of baptism, we put it back on scripture. We say, well, there's only one baptism. Scripture says there's one baptism. Well, I think one baptism was meant to be one baptism of unity, not necessarily in numeric. So I don't think there's anything wrong. If you're at a place in your life where you realize, you know, my faith is now at a place where I want to publicly for myself, say yes to Jesus in this way. I want to say that I think that's okay. I think it's okay to be baptized again. That doesn't make you an Anabaptist. And if you don't, if, if, that, if that baptism you had was good, then you don't have to. That's okay too. I, I, I told Chris I wasn't going to say this, but he's gone. So I will say it. <laughs> I, think, I think baptism is a huge deal. And sometimes we make way too big of a deal of it. It was supposed to be this amazing, beautiful thing that demonstrated our initiation, our entrance into the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and his community. And we turned the where and the why and the how and all of that into something we killed each other over. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back to say, boy, that it's, it's the heart of the matter, the heart of God. That's what it means when we saying, lead me to the cross, to your heart. I want to live a life that is surrendered and declaring that my allegiance is to Christ and to Christ alone. Well, like I said, this, this conversation continues next week. But if, if this is something that you want to talk more about with me or with somebody else on staff or with Chris, I would encourage you to do this. This is just a small, yes, you can do the connection card that was in your folder. Just write your name in some way that I can get a hold of you and then maybe write 
I want to know more. And that's not, we're not going to find you with water and baptize you. <laughs> but we can continue the conversation. And maybe God is prompting you in some small way to lean into this. Let's keep talking. I, I would love to. I would love to share more about my journey and hear more about yours. Let's pray. God, this is, uh, this is a subject that the church has very rarely in 2,000 years gotten right. And we want to. We desperately want to follow you faithfully in a way that's faithful to you, to your word, and to this community. So God, help us to understand this and to navigate this in a way that not only pleases you, but demonstrates to the world that we are disciples because of the way that we love each other. God, shape us and mold us and teach us. We need that. God, for the ways in which we as a church in this room and over the last 2,000 years have gotten this wrong and have majored in the minors and have divided over these things that were not meant to and shouldn't divide us. For that, God, we repent. And we ask that you would resurrect in us, that you would make new in us this realization of who we can be in you. Live that through us as your body, we ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.